Elgin, thank you for your service as appointed counsel under the Criminal Justice Act. Your Honor. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the court. Christopher DeLong, my colleague, Marja Zayed of the Dorsey & Whitney Law Firm for Appellant Salvador Nunez-Hernandez. Appellant asked this court to hold Section 1326 as unconstitutional and vacate his conviction thereunder. As an initial matter, Appellant asked that the, the court uh, deny the government's motions to dismiss and summary affirmance in the alternative. Uh, Mr. Nunez-Hernandez's claim here is not waived nor procedurally barred. This is a challenge to the state's power to prosecute and the court's power to hear the case. I agree with that, but is, is, the case, is the issue forfeited in the sense that it was never brought up before the district court? I don't believe that's possible, Your Honor. This is a, a, a challenge to the court's power. Uh, it's, it's uh, for all intents and purposes, a subject matter challenge. Uh, I don't believe the court can have jurisdiction over a, uh, to, to hear an offense uh, that is not an offense. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. So, so you know, it's tough because the Supreme Court used loose language in describing jurisdiction. A lot of the language that, that we've used is actually from the 1800s, when, and it comes from the habeas realm, where in habeas, we, the, you could only give habeas relief when there was a jurisdictional defect. But jurisdictional defects included things that were not subject matter jurisdiction. So, for example, um, a defect in terms of the vagueness of the statute or something like that. So my question for you is, shouldn't we still apply plain air review? Because this isn't jurisdictional in the subject matter jurisdiction sense. It's jurisdictional in the habeas or old Supreme Court case law sense. Uh, I respectfully disagree, Your Honor. I, I don't think that it is. Uh, I, I think that uh, a unconstitutional statute cannot be prosecuted, and therefore there's no offense against the United States, and therefore the there is no jurisdiction. It's not a theory based on... Uh, um, the, the historical uh, precedent that you were just um, summarizing for us, Your Honor. I think if you look at class versus United States, what the court was talking about there was the, the Mena Blackledge doctrine. And it, to the extent that that traces to um, the habeas theory you're discussing, I think there also is a very good quote in that case from, uh, I believe, the Supreme Court of Massachusetts. And it's discussing not... Um, not jurisdiction perhaps in the formal sense we would talk about it today, but the power to deprive someone of their liberty. Well, let me and ask so you this. What would happen, suppose this case had gone to trial, this exact case goes to trial, you never bring up the constitutionality of, of you know, under equal protection of this particular claim. It comes up to us on appeal. Wouldn't we apply plain air review? I mean, that's, that's sort of black letter law. What makes it different that somebody's proceeding to a guilty plea versus trying it? Sure. Well, that, first of all, this is not an obvious um, argument, and it wasn't at the time. And I think as we explained in our motion for summary affirmance, or sorry, excuse me, or response to the motion for summary affirmance, um, the, and also I think the, the motion for judicial notice, Korea uh, Lopez, the case from the District of Nevada, was decided um, after pretrial proceedings, and we're relying on evidence that was presented in evidentiary hearings um, in that case. And so uh, not only is it a, a, um, an important challenge to the nature of the court's power to deprive someone of their liberty and order them to be in prison for 120 months, uh, and the state's power to 
uh, prosecute that. It is uh, not an. It wasn't an obvious argument in the in the district court, and I'm sure as the courts we were would, eighteen, we wouldn't actually care if if if. I mean, suppose it goes to trial and it still wasn't an obvious argument. We'd still apply plain air review when it comes after a trial because you you know there's opportunities to raise it. Yeah, and I, and I agree, Your Honor, that there were opportunities to raise it. I think the point here is that it, it can't it can't be waived and it can't be forfeited because of the nature of the claim, which is a challenge to the court's power. Can we and find then, otherwise, though, in the Lehman case, uh, where there was a Second Amendment as applied challenge raised on appeal that was not raised below, and I think Judge Graz wrote that opinion. We found it was subject to plain error. That's right, Your Honor, and and that is what the Lehman case says. Um, and I actually tend to agree with the Lehman case, but I don't think it, it um, affects this case at all. Because so how we're, do you distinguish it? We're, we're not making an as-applied challenge. It's not the significance of the facts about uh, Mr. Salvador Nunez Hernandez or the facts even of his, of his offense. Uh, it, it's the significance of the 1952 INA, which traces its racist legacy back to the 1929. The is, I see. The difference is that was an as-applied challenge that was waived or forfeited. That's right, Your Honor. All right, thank you. Sure. So uh, picking up, <clears throat> the motion to dismiss and the motion for summary affirmance uh, should be denied. Um, this is not the type of challenge that can be forfeited or waived. It's the type of challenge uh, that is always raisable, uh, e even under Rule 12C. I believe the last uh, part of Rule 12C says challenges to the court's jurisdiction can be raised at any time. And that's essentially the challenge that we're making here. So I think this court has to reach the merits. And on the merits, I think, uh, as the uh, District Court of Nevada found in Carrillo-Lopez, the, the, uh, we have met our burden under Arlington Heights, and the responsibility is to the government to rebut it. Now, the, the evidence presented in, in Carrillo-Lopez, I think, is very persuasive. We'll start with, first of all, under Arlington Heights, uh, oh, excuse me, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm uh, getting ahead of myself. I just want to know for the, course that, the court that, obviously, we argue that Arlington Heights applies and to the extent that the government argues that rational basis should apply, uh, the government is wrong. This is not a challenge to the government's power to exclude uh, someone or to deport someone. This is a challenge to the government's power to put someone uh, in, in prison and the, and the court's power to hear that case. So on Arlington Heights, I want to start with um, the historical background. Uh, the, the language of the 1952 uh, INA, which is, I think, the act that uh, the court does need to look at, uh, traces itself to the Undesirable Alien Acts, uh, Aliens Act of 1929. Now, I don't think, and, and the government conceded in the District of Nevada, I don't think that there's any debate about the racial animus that motivated the uh, enactment of the 1929 uh, bill and, and its specific language. Now, in 1952, uh, the uh, Congress did nothing, no, there's, it, the, the Congress did nothing to repudiate that racist history of the, 19, of the Undesirable Alien Act of 1929. In fact, there is rel uh, relative silence in the congressional record as to this particular offense, except for a few uh, notable um, sequences of events that led up to the passage, which of course is the second factor on Arlington Heights. So we have that the language is the same. Then we also have uh, President Truman's veto. President Truman's veto, as the um, experts testified, is uh, motivated by uh, a, a, a desire to rectify past mistakes and a recognition that the 1929 Act was enacted with racial uh, animus. 
And we also have the bill's sponsors using derogatory terms, and in fact using a derogatory term to name the bill. Um, and, and we also have the statement of the then Deputy Attorney General uh, Peyton Ford um, directed ex uh, ex explicitly at Section 1326 and explaining how it was a tool, a good tool, and in fact the, the only change to the 1952 uh, enactment of the language, which was to say uh, found in the United States, uh, was a positive development because it, it actually increased his ability to enforce that act against, quote, wetbacks. Now, other courts have looked at this evidence and, uh, and, and come out the other way. However, uh, no courts have looked at this specific expert testimony and this uh, specific challenge and, and come to this conclusion, and we'd ask so that the you court... you may proceed, or you may save time for rebuttal. I, I just noticed myself that I wasn't tracking, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop right here and uh, reserve my time for rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. Buzicki, you may proceed. Thank you, Your Honor. Good morning, and may it please the court. My name is Kate Buzicki, and I'm here on behalf of the United States. This court should grant summary affirmance in this case because the defendant utterly failed to complete the basic blocking and tackling of federal criminal lit litigation to present his claim properly before the district court. There is no record in this case, and that is why the defendant continues to lean heavily on a record from a district court far away that has no binding effect on this court and is in fact erroneous in many key respects. This is a motion that could have been brought under Rule 12 and should have been brought under that rule. The defendant's uh, claim against the statute was readily discernible from the face of the indictment. And as we cite on page 14 of our brief, Numerous defendants around the country have done the basic, uh, a very crucial first steps, which is to bring a motion in the district court challenging Well, I don't statute. think he's challenging the indictment. Uh, it seems to me that under Class versus U.S., uh, wasn't he able to bring this on appeal? Your Honor, Class certainly uh, spoke to the fact that the fact of a guilty plea by itself does not prevent a defendant from challenging a statute. But class is silent as to what happens then. Once the defendant clears that hurdle, they still have to face the fact that there is no record below, that this court, which is uh, here to review a record that the district court has created, uh, has nothing to review other than the wholesale importation of another district court's records. So while the defendant may, under class, have the ability to bring this challenge, it still has nothing to do with Rule 12 and nothing to do with plain error. If this uh, defendant were to have done the basic first steps of litigation, as the defendant in Carrillo-Lopez did, there would be a record for this court to review. But there, for Rule 12, though, uh, your argument on Rule 12, we would be in plain error land, though, wouldn't we? I mean... Yes, Your Honor. Okay, I just want to be sure about that. Yes, if this... If, if the... 
uh, government's motion to, for summary affirmance is not granted in this case. And, and again, we, should, we believe it should be. The only um, available um, review is the plain error standard because there is nothing here um, for the court to look at from the record below that would give any other viable standard of review or claim preservation. So in this situation, the defendant states that his claim relied on decades of historical and academic research and data. Those decades of research and data were available to him at the time he decided to plead guilty. He brought many challenges to the indictment against him, but not this challenge. And therefore, with no factual findings from the district court to review, he's simply attempting to leapfrog the basic tasks that every other defendant who wishes to challenge the constitutionality of a statute, whether that be in this case an immigration statute, in many cases a Second Amendment challenge uh, for a firearm statute, those defendants have done the right thing and the record has been created and the court has something to review. With nothing here um, like that, as you stated, Judge Strauss, the only available uh, uh, set of tools for this court is plain error. And when you look at plain error, you, you find that this utterly fails. A defendant, to show that a statute itself, a facial challenge to a statute, meets the plain error standard, has to show that, there, it, that the statute is unconstitutional and that is clear under current law. What we have here is one district court in the District of Nevada that has held contrary to many other district courts um, and certainly uh, nothing at the level of the appellate court or the Supreme Court to say that 1326 is unconstitutional. There's simply no way that Mr. Nunez-Hernandez can show that he can prevail at the plain error um, framework. Isn't that partially, though, because we don't, you know, because we have a District of Nevada case versus a, an Eighth Circuit case? Suppose we had decided the exact same thing the District of Nevada did. Then on plain air review, presumably we would have to apply it because decisions on direct appeal apply retroactively. So is the source of the decision a big part of the argument you're making? Uh, the source in terms of the District of Nevada, yes. Your Honor? It is because this court has said that a non-binding uh, opinion, a non-presidential opinion, doesn't have any effect on this court's jurisprudence. And so in this case, the District of Nevada certainly cannot control what this court does or any other court um, outside of that district. So when, the, when a party uh, like Mr. Nunez-Hernandez here does not meet the basic first initial steps of federal criminal litigation, this court should not allow him to do an end run around uh, the federal rules and all of the other safeguards that are in place to ensure that a record is created and this court has something to review at the appellate stage. Summary affirmance is the appropriate uh, response to this defendant's appeal. But if not, we urge this court to apply the plain error standard and to hold that Mr. Nunez-Hernandez simply cannot meet his burden to show that there was plain error in this case. There have been decades of uh, cases involving this statute, and with only one outlier court in Nevada to lean on, he cannot show that plain error applies to his challenge. Unless the court has any questions, um, I will uh, rest on my brief. All right, thank you, Ms. Bazicki. 
All right, Mr. DeLong, you may proceed with rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. Just a couple of points. Um, I recognize I may not have completely answered uh, Judge Strauss's question the, the first time I was up here, and so I want to make sure that um, I'm clear that I do not believe that this challenge that Mr. Nunez-Hernandez brings is waivable uh, or forfeitable because of the nature of the challenge. Um, and so e e even if we had not, even if the case had gone to trial and we raised it here for the first time, it's a challenge to the constitutionality of the statute, and if the, if the statute is unconstitutional, the court can't affirm there was no jurisdiction and no power to hear the case. Um, uh, rule, tw uh, rule 12, uh, plain error review, does not apply. Uh, it doesn't apply for actually the very same reasons I was just uh, attempting to explain. Um, and also, the, I, I recognize that, and, and you know, we readily um, stated in our briefs and explained, that the, the challenge was not brought and that it was brought because the District of Nevada made this decision, and it made the decision not just based on uh, decades of data and historical research, but on the testimony of experts that we did not have, that did not exist. Um, and then the analysis of the court obviously did not exist at the time. Um, and unless the court has any other questions, I'd ask that the motions to dismiss and for some reformance be denied, uh, Section 1326 be held unconstitutional, and Mr. Nunez-Fernandez's conviction thereunder be vacated. Thank you, counsel. I'd like to thank uh, both counsel. The case was